concern for climate change, what I'm really arguing for is, is dedicated, absolute top of the range supercomputing, which these days is exascale, 10 to the 18 flops per second, floating point operations per second, yep. uh, dedicated to climate change. And that's not happening at the moment anywhere around the world. If I'm talking to a climate skeptic, I would say, look, you surely are as interested as I am, or as a climate, you know, uh, uh, somebody that's very concerned about climate change, to know the truth. You know, how bad is it going to get? Well, solving the laws of physics uh, is the only way we have to deal with this. We can answer this question. There's no laboratory experiment we can do to emulate climate change. Hello, friends, and welcome to one of the most wide-ranging discussions I've ever had on this podcast, and it's with one of the most polymathematical, most wide-ranging of all intellects that I've really had the honor to speak to, and it's Dr. Tim Palmer of Oxford University, who was introduced to me by his friend and collaborator and multi-time past guest on the show, Sabina Hassenfelder. They are collaborators, and around the time that Sabina came on, the podcast to discuss her most recent book, Existential Physics. She then referred me kindly to Tim, and we got in touch about Tim's book, which you're going to hear about today, called The Primacy of Doubt. From quantum physics to climate change, how the science of uncertainty can help us understand our chaotic world. And we delve into all the greatest hits from chaos theory, the butterfly effect, climate change, meteorological forecasts, and why they're almost always wrong except here in San Diego, where the easiest job is to be a weather person. And what I found so fascinating about Tim is that he doesn't stop at just quote unquote, his uh, Nobel laureate laurels, he is a Nobel laureate, uh, in that he was the lead author on the IPCC, uh, International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, way back when, when he won it with renowned scientist Al Gore. I don't think Al Gore is a scientist. I don't even know if he would call himself a scientist. We get into a little bit about it and why uh, some of the dire predictions don't come true, what chaos theory can really tell you about science in general, but about climate specifically. And we also got into the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and how Tim claims we need a Large Hadron Collider type effort, but for climate change and why that is. I thought it was fascinating. We got into the brain and how the brain works and quantum mechanics, the foundations. And my favorite topic that we got into involves the transition from not just the classical world of inclined planes and pendula, but also the world of chaos, of viscosity, of turbulence, of hurricane force winds, and more that uh, then have to somehow emerge perhaps from the quantum and correlated phenomena in the quantum realm. So it's a wide ranging conversation. We get into so many things. We left many things off the table and we have a part two sometimes scheduled. But as the primacy of doubt proves, one thing is for certain, there is power in embracing what we don't know, not just what we do know. So I want to, before we embark on this wonderful discussion, I want to uh, ask you for your contribution, not passing the plate, not necessarily to Venmo me a couple of Bitcoin, although that might be nice, but instead to leave me what could only be described as a free 
request, which is to leave a review or at least a rating. Just click a number of stars. I prefer five, but if you want to leave one, at least let me know why you left one. It's 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 incredibly important for me that we get the word out about this podcast. And one of the ways we do so is by having ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's easy to do. You can click below uh, in the show notes, wherever you're listening to this, to find out how. And don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel because my super producer, Stuart Walkow, puts in incredible background images, video, and uh, assorted links to different documents. And you don't want to miss that either. So please, uh, please do this, uh, the one favor for me. And um, don't forget again to to subscribe uh, to the channel and um, my mailing list, briankeating.com slash list. And so now we're going into the impossible with a man who used to be a general relativity theorist. And uh, and that person is Tim Palmer. Oh, by the way, how many people that study general relativity does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, two. One to hold the bulb and one to rotate space-time itself. Okay, you can't really blame me for my dad jokes. You knew what you were getting into. Anyway, enjoy. Here we go, into the impossible. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Welcome, friends, to another wonderful edition of the Into the Impossible podcast with our guest, Tim Palmer, the Royal Society Research Professor in the Department of Physics at the University of Oxford, who pioneered the development of operational ensemble weather and climate forecasting, and in 2007 was formally recognized as having contributed to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, and received a recognition for that via the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize that he shared along with many other scientists and also former Vice President Al Gore. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of connection here in San Diego with the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, uh, all sorts of good stuff, many, many good connections. But this will be part of our continuing sequence of Think Like a Nobel Prize winner, although I can't say that uh, Tim is my first non-physics Nobel Prize winner. He's, he didn't win it in physics, not yet at least, uh, but he did uh, at least participate in the uh, in the Peace Prize. So you're my first Peace Prize co-recipient. So Tim, uh, thank you so much for joining us on this auspicious occasion of the publication of this wonderful book. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So we've had on a fair number of Oxonians. <clears throat> we've had on a fair number of uh, of of physicists that focus on the biggest picture topics one could imagine. And uh, you were actually referred to me uh, by our mutual friend, Sabina Hassenfelder, who is a recent guest on the podcast with whom you've written some wonderful works with and uh, with whom you and I co-recorded a video. This is actually our second video together. We did a very, very technical uh, expository video on the differences between British English and American English back uh, on the first of the year or thereabouts. So we'll put a link to that somewhere up here, down there, wherever. So it's our second time together, Tim, but uh, this time it's synchronized so we can actually have a conversation. <laughs> so Great. Tim, as I mentioned, what I love to do is talk about books on this podcast. And I love to uh, to discuss the thought process behind the book and kind of we'll get into your process. You're remarkably productive. And, and I want to get into your habits. And we have a lot of young scientists that listen to this podcast and learning from folks like you who do so much in so many different fields from gravity to the brain to God, we're going to get into it all. And of course, chaos and climate change. I want to ask you, where did the 
title of the book come to you from? Uh, I understand that took some figuring out. And the subtitle, which involves our chaotic world. And, um, and most importantly for us visual learners, what is the uh, depiction, the illustration on the cover meant to evoke in the reader's minds? Okay, well, there's there's uh, quite a few questions sort of tied up there. Uh, let me start by saying that, you know, uh, you you've talked about my or at least mentioned my work on climate change, but I've I've had a fairly I would say kind of broad type of career, and I started life off uh, after my undergraduate degree in in mathematics and physics, uh, doing a PhD in general relativity theory. So I actually had started off thinking that my you know life's work would be in fundamental physics yeah. but i kind of reevaluated things after the phd and uh you know partly because i i met some people by chance in the climate area and i i kind of felt that i needed to do something let's say a bit more um you know that could have some impact let's say on on the the human species or, or some parts of it at least um so, but working in, in weather and climate, you know, you realize that weather and climate pretty much affect everything in life, you know, from the economy uh, through to health, uh, through to, you know, uh, whether we have enough food and water to uh, to eat and drink. So that in turn got me kind of interested in all these downstream application sciences. And I was kind of, I think it was at the beginning of, probably at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I was trying to think, is there a theme that, that kind of unifies everything that I've done? And the notion of uncertainty uh, kind of came up in my head. And uh, that got start, me starting to think whether I could try to write a, a popular book, sort of loosely speaking about the science of uncertainty, but kind of discussing it through a range of topics that I've been involved with one way or another. Um, so, and then the the actual title, The Primacy of Doubt, um, was actually taken from a, um, a book that uh, James Glick wrote, a, fa a very famous biography of Richard Feynman. Um, and Glick is somebody I I've known because he, prior to that, wrote an absolutely wonderful book uh, about chaos theory it really actually mm -hmm. you know he he actually coined the phrase the butterfly effect um in in the book uh this is back in the uh 1980s i think yeah um so I, I was aware of james glick and his 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 fantastic ability to to explain things clearly um and that got me interested in his biography of Feynman. and then i came across this quote in in that biography that about Feynman, and glick says uh, he believed he Feynman believed in the primacy of doubt, not as a blemish on our ability to know, but as the essence of knowing. And I just thought that was such a wonderful phrase. Um, you know, the, the notion that the human condition is one of uncertainty and our creativity comes from being, you know, uncertain about things. And that notion that the primacy of doubt, I, I thought that really resonated with me. And, it, and it's been a kind of a, I suppose a philosophy of mine that um, that uncertainty, uh, you know, is something that you have to put right up front and foremost. Also depicted on the cover reminded me of Glick's book Chaos uh, because it seems to have 
Well, it's a very attractive cover, let me say. Uh, so uh, what is the uh, the object depicted on the cover and what is its relevance to quantum physics and climate change? Right. Um, the, the front cover is a depiction of what is sometimes called a strange attractor, which sounds uh, kind of a bizarre uh, words to use, but it's I would say, I, you see, I, it's, it's what you would call the geometry of chaos. And it's something that I think, you know, Lorentz, Ed Lorentz, who was the uh, discoverer of this geometry of chaos, should actually himself have won a Nobel Prize. Um, so what, what Lorentz discovered was three very simple uh, mathematical equations um, that you know, you could, you could, I mean, these days, they're so easy to solve, they, you know, they're used as screensavers on computers. Uh, <laughs> in his day, they, in his day, he had to actually get some pretty chunky computing to, to solve them. <laughs> but what he, what he found was that um, when he ran these equations over long periods of time on the computer, and plotted the the state, so there are three variables. So if you want to describe the state of the of the system, you need a three, it's a point in a three-dimensional space, which you call state space. And um, you run the, your model and you look at, you know, how do these points evolve? And you find that they evolve on this rather strange uh, geometry, which is the shown in the front cover of the book. And Lorentz was the one that realized uh, that this geometry actually is a fractal. It's a fractal in the sense that if you zoom into it as much as you like, um, you'll still you'll see the same kind of structures uh, appearing and reappearing, mm. and this is completely the complete antithesis of the sort of classical Euclidean geometry that we're all taught about at school and stuff, which like a sphere, the surface of a sphere. Um, which just gets really boring if you zoom into it enough. It just looks flat and uninteresting. So these fractals are distinguished um, by never running out of structure on the small scale. And actually, as a result of that, you need a different type of mathematics to really describe the geometry of these fractals. Uh, and I've my whole, you know, pretty much my life has has evolved around either understanding these fractals or trying to kind of elucidate properties of them. Uh, and a lot of the work I've done on predictability of weather and climate has used Lorenz's uh, geometry um, as, uh, as a kind of a didactic tool. Mm. But um, in the book, I try to sort of go a bit further and, um, you know, address the question, what if the whole universe evolved on some kind of fractal in some, you know, humongously big, uh, state space, cos you know, cosmological state space. The the interesting point about that is that because there are gaps in the fractal, there, there are places. No matter where you, how much you zoom in, there are places where no trajectories ever go. My, um, what it means is that worlds that you might conceive of in your head, uh, what we call counterfactual worlds, things that didn't happen that kind of might have happened. Uh, may actually be inconsistent with this geometry. And what I tried to show in the book, and I've written papers on this, is that that could this could be, I'm not saying it is, it could be 
uh, a new way to understand some of the really puzzling sort of paradoxes and and conceptual difficulties in quantum mechanics mm. paradoxically enough perhaps yeah. we could talk about that later i don't want to get bogged down into too much detail <clears throat> yeah right let's here. kind of start with the astonishing uh story of uh, of a very you know major character in this book I, I don't know what he looks like uh but uh, i think his name is uh fish michael fish uh, oh yeah a man in the met office where he used to work uh and it's uh concerns an event that occurred uh about uh 25 years ago almost exactly by the time the book comes out <clears throat> october 16th 1987 the south of england was battered by one of the most brutal storms to ever hit the country in over 300 years 15 million trees were blown down 22 people died and damages exceeding three billion dollars worse yet meteorologists had predicted a nice breezy day in the aftermath, scientists asked themselves, why was the forecast so wrong? The weather forecasters admit they got it wrong. They'd warned of a depression approaching, but they had no idea of its strength or direction. This morning, people woke up to devastation and forecasts like this one in the Daily Telegraph. It said the weather would have an unsettled autumnal look. Really, to have predicted it further ahead in great detail, We'd have needed more information midday yesterday, the midday run of the computer model yesterday, what we call a numerical model, which tries to simulate the atmosphere in terms of equations. That would have needed more information at midday yesterday. When I heard about the uh, the title, you know, the reason for the title coming from Feynman, I actually thought of two other uh, quotes. Well, one, one from him, uh, which is, uh, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. That's the first uh, quote I want you to react to. And then the second one is from the famous Lev Landau, who said that cosmologists are often in error, but never in doubt. Um, what is the role of doubt, of doubting yourself, of being uncertain? And how much should you know people have gained or lost confidence in Michael Fish and his ilk after failing to predict uh, a hurricane uh, and instead predicting a nice breezy day. <laughs> uh, and uh, and then subsequently we'll get into COVID and, and all sorts of other predictions that are also made by our fellow experts. I mean, that that's, that's scientific. So how do you react to Feynman's quote, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts? Do you agree with Feynman? Well, uh, I, I mean, the word ignorance, uh, you know, uh, the word ignorance could indicate uh, a complete lack of knowledge. And of course, experts don't have a complete lack of knowledge. Right. Uh, so I, I, I sometimes wonder whether the word ignorance, I've come across that, that quote myself, of course. Um, I do wonder whether the word ignorance is quite the right word to use. But um, it's certainly the case, you know, that um, that someone who you know, says they're an expert on a, in a field is fallible. Um, so, I, I, you know, perhaps if we could substitute, you know, the fallibility of experts for the ignorance of experts, I'd feel a bit more comfortable because mm. certainly uh, experts are, are fallible. Yeah. Um, now, you know, the Michael Fish storm, I, I, I say a few words about it, if you don't mind, because um, it came at a very uh, opportune time for me. Uh, which is in the, in the 1980s, I had, you see, uh, again, we come back to Lorenz's model of chaos. 
Good afternoon to you. Earlier on today, apparently, a woman rang the BBC and said she heard that there was a hurricane on the way. Well, if you're watching, don't worry, there isn't. But having said that, actually, the weather will become very windy, but most of the strong winds, incidentally, will be down over Spain and uh, across into France as well. Even back in the 1980s, people knew about, uh, and, and of course, Glick's book um, popularised the notion of the butterfly effect. So people were aware that because of you know, the flaps of butterflies' wings causing tornadoes in Texas to occur, you know, a week later or something. They were aware that the weather, you know, couldn't be predicted precisely for, for long periods of time. That that was kind of fairly well accepted. But the the converse was that if you stick to with a, within a few days, uh, or uh, predicting just a few days into the future, then chaos is is not really important, and you can make uh, kind of kind of categorical predictions. It will be sunny, it will be rainy, it will be stormy, or it will be dry, and, and that pervaded the uh, the professional community of meteorologists as well. And I used Lorenz's model to show that the degree of at which, if you like. The degree of chaos uh, in an initial condition really varies a lot depending on where you are on that fractal geometry, where you are on that strange attractor. Mm -hmm. There are some points on the fractal attractor which are actually extremely predictable and stable. Small uncertainties don't really affect the trajectory very much. But there are other initial conditions on other points of the attractor, which are incredibly unstable and very, very sensitive to uh, initial conditions. And uh, so I argued that we shouldn't be complacent about uh, weather forecasting, even for a few days into the future, because if we hit one of these exceptionally unstable points or the atmosphere goes through one of these very unstable points, uh, then we're, you know, then we're in danger of making a complete hash of the forecast. And some of my colleagues were kind of sceptical about that, or they didn't think it was something to worry about. But the 1987 storm was just so, so it was a fantastic example of this very, this exactly this phenomenon that you know, the atmosphere itself is a chaotic system, but the degree of chaos varies and can vary very substantially from one week to the next. And we retrospectively ran an ensemble of forecasts. And by that, I mean, we, run, we ran the weather forecast model 50 times with very, very slightly different initial states, flaps of butterflies' wings, as it were, introduced into the uh, initial conditions. And for this particular, uh, sort of retro, retrospective forecast made two days before the storm uh, hit southern England, the spread in the ensemble was just extraordinarily large. I mean, it was just, you know, bigger than you could imagine. And this was just a, a clear example, as I say, that chaos isn't some kind of fixed quantity that, you know, systems become unpredictable after 30 days or after whatever you want, some period of fixed period of time. It varies. Um, and this is this is a this is a feature, I mean this is the second if there is if there are two themes which run through the book, uh, one is the uh, the notion of uncertainty. 
And the other is the notion of non-linearity. Um, so I pretty much all the systems I deal with are non-linear in some way or another. Right. And this notion about the degree of predictability varying from one state to another is a feature of a non-linear system that, that, that really sort of almost defines a non-linear system. It's sometimes could be sometimes predictable, sometimes very unpredictable. Um, so the Michael Fish storm uh, is was kind of nature's way. I mean, I have to say nature came to my help uh, in persuading my colleagues that this was a serious problem because, uh, I mean, you know, there was nothing else on the news for several days. The director general of the Met Office was under a lot of pressure to resign. Uh, and people were just saying how, you know, we spend all these millions on the state meteorological service and they give us such rubbish, uh, you know, advice or they can do. Uh, so this really changed the way things were done. And um, uh, these days, ensemble forecasting is used around the world. Uh, it's pretty much, you know, accepted by the current generation. And it makes a big difference in in how you actually go about making decisions. Uh, we can come on to that, but one one really big area that's changed is how humanitarian and disaster relief organizations decide ahead of time when to send food and medicine and water and shelter and stuff uh, ahead of some predicted storm, uh, predicted extreme event, rather than in the old days where they would just wait for it to happen, the hurricane to happen or whatever, and then go in afterwards. Now they, they're going in ahead of time but they use probabilities to make that decision about when to go in and when and not to go. And how does the you know probabilistic or statistical <clears throat> nature of uh, this new method of dealing with you know climate or weather related issues say? How does that differ? You know, how, how does that Im employ the the main features of say chaos theory or um, you know dynamical stochastic systems? In other words, I, I I remember actually my freshman year, my my professor at Case Western, Robert Brown, he used to he made us read chaos in the physics you know course about you know inclined planes and mechanics and stuff. But we loved it. <clears throat> And uh, he was a student of Feynman's actually at Caltech, but anyway, uh, he, you know, it, it was very impressive, and and we love learning about you know, calculating fractal dimensions and and uh, showing you know uh, the, the actually generating the 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 butterfly or the Lorentz attractor with different exponents, <clears throat> and uh, and of course the Mandelbrot set, but I, I never got the sense uh, that it was actually applied. In other words, um, you know, does my local? And by the way, I, I should say that there's. Um, the the extreme span of jobs exist here in San Diego. So the the hardest job in the world is being a sportscaster, uh, because we've never won a championship in any major sport uh, from uh, the World Series of baseball uh, to soccer to uh, football when we used to have a team. But the easiest job to compensate is meteorologist, uh, because it's basically you know they throw up a, a picture. But I've never heard one of them say you know the Lyapunov exponent of this fractal dimension of the uh, of the perimeter of this approaching you know we just had a tropical depression blast through here. And it lasted, you know, three days longer <laughs> than anybody predicted. We got, you know, random rain. And, and um, so do people actually use, you know, the these aside from the general features of very extreme sensitivity to initial conditions, uh, aside from, you know, kind of scale and variant, are there any applied 
ways to translate the esoteric and beautiful mathematics of Mandelbrot and Laurent to something practical where it would improve something in the daily life, whether it be the price of something, the impact of something, or or the uh, the cause of something. So, yeah, can you address the actual? Well, you mentioned uh, you you started to mention a thing called a Lyapunov exponent. Uh, so let me let me sort of uh, uh, follow up on that. Yeah, um, because uh, in the early days, um, you know, we were rather sort of blasé about. Uh, how you would add these perturbations to the initial conditions to generate an ensemble. And uh, it turns out that um, if you add small small amplitude and small scale uh, perturbations into a weather forecast model, in other words, you add, so that a model, you know, would have a, a characteristic uh, grid. So all of the equations are are kind of discretized onto a grid, which, I mean, these days is, um, you know, is around 10 kilometers, uh, but, you know, go, go back 30 years and it's near a hundred kilometers. Um, so you, 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 the uncertainties are largest on the, uh, scales close to the grid. So you, you say, okay, I'll just add, I'll add some sort of noise as it were to the initial conditions. Um, what you find is that these perturbations actually don't grow at all. They're mm. completely the opposite of what you might think from the butterfly effect. Mm. And the reason is, or a key reason anyway, is that models have a lot of artificial kind of damping and vis you know what we call artificial viscosity to kind of keep them uh, stable and so that these kind of small perturbations don't suddenly cause the model to to kind of what a numerical analyst would call blow up, do something, mm. you know, completely unphysical. Um, so we actually had to go about thinking uh, quite carefully about how to construct perturbations that were consistent with our uncertainty in the observational network, but we're also going to have the effect of growing in the as the forecast ran. So you mentioned that the, the term Lyapunov exponent, and and that's a kind of a measure of uh, how um, uh, a, a perturbation uh, grows in a chaotic system, and the, the largest Lyapunov exponent sort of gives you the, the largest possible uh, growth. So what we what we did, in fact, is borrow the ideas or the techniques of chaos theory to compute uh, Lyapunov exponents and the associated the associated perturbations are called Lyapunov vectors. We had to do this within the a kind of a, I don't want to go in again into technical details, but finite time kind of framework. But basically, we we use these techniques from chaos theory for computing how the, uh, you know, how perturbations grow, uh, you know, and what are the most unstable directions, essentially. It's what are the most unstable directions um, perturbed along those uh, rather than just randomly perturbing. So that was a kind of an idea borrowed from, chaos theory that went right into the um operational mm. uh, uh code um but you know you're right not not everything is and, and actually one thing that's important to say and i i kind of go into this a bit in my book um is that there actually is a difference between weather and let's say lorenz's model of chaos or, or mandelbrot's uh you know attractor and all this sort of stuff 
which is, um, and again, it relates actually to Lyapunov exponents, which is what we would call the dimension of the attractor. Um, so how, how many unstable directions are there? How many uh, growing Lyapunov exponents are there? And for something simple like Lorenz's model, uh, there's just a couple, but for the weather, you know, we think there are billions and billions and billions. I mean, it's essentially, we're dealing with in the real weather world, a very, 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 very large dimensional uh, chaotic system. And uh, actually in the book, I, I go into the reason why, despite the fact that the the underlying equations, the, for example, the thing called the Navier-Stokes equations, which are equations for fluid motion, even though they're deterministic, in other words, they don't have any random terms in the equations, because we are dealing with a finite truncation of a system that, you know, for all practical purposes, actually has an infinite number of degrees of freedom, uh, it's, it's actually advantageous to add noise, add stochastic noise, you mentioned the word stochastic there, um, to the equations, the computational equations to represent properly all of those kind of unstable directions. So again, uh, stochasticity is something that we've taken from the kind of more, uh, say, theoretical ideas in chaos theory and applied them into operations. Um, when we look at the uh, the delightful figures in the book, and we'll we'll flash some of those up uh, um, right. in the uh, animated version, I had the uh, hardcover and the uh, and the ebook, and and there'll be an audio book at some point. Um, there, uh, it's wonderfully and beautifully illustrated, and and the illustrations really do convey, you know, the the kind of really the relevance of this new way of thinking mathematically that uh, that. You know, it's, it's not that new, actually. I mean, as I said, I remember from a freshman year, you know, 30 years, 25 years ago, whatever. Uh, but nevertheless, it in terms of its its applications and what it can be useful for. And, and of course, looming throughout the book is also the specter of another, you know, worldwide uh, event that uh, had global implications. And, and it's, of course, COVID-19, uh, which we're still dealing with in various incarnations. I just got over a bout of it. Um, and I want to ask you, you know, uh, before we get into, you know, uh, and without getting into political kind of discussions, um, because there's so much potential for that in both the climate and COVID and uh, economics and all sorts of other issues in the book. Uh, the one safe space is when we, we'll talk about Bell's inequality. I, I don't think there's any political uh, ramifications of that, that we will be tiptoeing around minefields. Uh, but what are the similarities with something like a pandemic, aside from the fact that we had people uh, you know, and both, you know, they're both features of the UK or people in the UK, you know, predicting dire outcomes and then changing it. Uh, I guess another Neil Ferguson, not the one who's on the, this podcast a few weeks ago, but uh, but another one in Imperial, maybe. Anyway, uh, what could we apply from this additional way of thinking about mathematical, the 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 chaos and and uh, attractive states and bistable and and so forth, sensitivity to initial conditions. What is the relevance of that to something that we've really known about for you know hundreds or thousands of years, pa a global pandemic? Is there a relevancy of this mathematical way of thinking with these uh, with these kind of features that are similar to the to chaos theory towards a better comprehension of the spread of a pandemic like COVID nineteen? Yes. Um, maybe I could just quickly uh, 
comment on the figure that you just quickly showed, because that yeah. illustrates also very nicely uh, an example of the type of kind of intermittent chaos. This one? Uh, well, it wasn't that. You oh, no, showed a picture the, um, of uh, planets, of a, a planetary of a, orbits, yeah. of a, a three-body orbit, which, yeah. which look, um, yeah. I mean, I, I recommend anyone to go to the actual uh, online animation uh, because it's just phenomenal. It, you, what you see are these four bodies uh, rotating around each other in kind of what looked to be almost, well, they look to be perfect ellipses. Yeah. And you watch this for a while and you say, oh, this is boring. I mean, why am I watching this? Because, well, and the reason you're watching it is all <laughs> of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, uh, the planets just spiral off to infinity. It's like they hit this. It's exactly the same as the Michael Fish storm. Yeah. They hit this point of instability, having been, you know, potentially for millions of years, uh, just trundling around each other, minding their own business. They hit this point of instability and they suddenly zip off to infinity. <laughs> and uh, this is just a lovely example of the same notion as the Michael Fish storm. Um Hmm. And you know, I, I try to argue maybe the the uh, the, um, the 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 global meltdown in twenty oh eight could in uh, the financial meltdown was a was another example of that. Now coming to COVID, um, I think what I was struck by was the uh, the the analogy in some ways is actually better with climate change than weather forecasting. Um, uh, it, it, so, uh, I, I have a chapter talking about how ensembles are also used uh, to make. Well, I got to say the word prediction, but but perhaps that's not the right word to use in this context because if you think about climate change, uh, the reason we're concerned about climate change is that we're uh, emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. They warm the planet and they change the weather. Um, but the extent to which the uh, uh, the extent to which the weather does change is a function of how much we continue to emit carbon dioxide. If we suddenly, for some reason tomorrow, stopped emitting carbon dioxide, then then uh, we'd be looking at a very different climate uh, by mid-century than if we just carry on as per normal. Now we can't, you know, I I can't. I don't think anyone can predict. Uh, you know what what we will decide to do about our emissions so when you were making predictions of climate change they're pre they're predicated on a particular assumption about whether we'll continue to emit as normal whether we'll cut back a little bit or we'll cut back a lot and so on but we still have to use ensembles so just having running one model with an increase in carbon dioxide is not going to give you a reliable uh, result, um, you need an ensemble which span the uncertainties in the equations and so on. And again, you, you essentially have probabilistic estimates of, of future climate change. Mm -hmm. Now, the COVID thing is is kind of similar to that in the sense that, you know, the governments governments around the world had to make decisions about whether to, uh, you know, impose lockdowns uh, or you know let people just carry on and and hope for the best. Um, so and again, those are those are not uh, you know nobody's going to be able to predict that. So what the COVID modelers do are make and the words they use the same words actually that the climate change people do, which is projections. They're projecting 
what the COVID deaths and COVID hospitalizations will be, uh, given certain different potential policy uh, assumptions. Uh, you know, one policy assumption is that uh, you know nothing. We do nothing to restrict people's uh, interactions, and then another one we, we restrict them a lot. Uh, but again, because the models are imperfect models, they're particularly imperfect, of course, when we're dealing with social interactions and so on, uh, then ensembles, and this was realized actually quite quite early on, I think, in, um, in uh, COVID modeling that, uh, I mean, in the case of the Imperial College model, they would mm -hmm. put stochastic some stochastic representations for uncertain parameters. But in the US, they did something which was actually much closer to what IPCC does for the climate change assessments, which is they they made use of the fact that many different institutes in the US had developed their own uh, epidemiological models. And uh, you know, a few a few people kind of took the lead in ensuring that the that the predictions and projections were done in a fairly coordinated way with you know similar types of data output mm -hmm. so everything could then be analyzed in a central hub in a in a probabilistic way so um i wrote a chapter about covid because it did strike me there was remarkable uh uh kind of similarities in the science i mean interestingly there are remarkable similarities in the i mean maybe that's less remarkable but in the political I know you don't want to talk about politics, but the, you know, the people that advocated doing, you know, nothing much about climate change were typically the same people that advocated doing nothing much about restricting interactions in COVID. So that was kind of an interesting um, parallel there. But scientifically, there's a lot of a lot of parallels between climate projections and COVID projections. Yeah, uh, and I wonder. I mean, my only my only kind of comment at the end was that um, just as. Uh, the world, the UN World Meteorological Organization, pretty much masterminded the uh, the production of these IPCC reports by by coordinating climate modeling groups around the world. So I think perhaps the World Health Organization could do something similar uh, for this type of ep epidemiological um, modeling. In other words, get you know get groups around the world to do their uh, projections in a coordinated way, you know, they have the, you know, the, the, so you can kind of compare and contrast them and produce probabilistic analyses and so on and so forth. So I hope that'll, that'll be something WHO yeah. take in, on. In the book, you talk a lot about, um, you know, kind of a CERN for climate change. And, you know, I couldn't help thinking, well, maybe a CERN for, you know, some kind of uh, a global pandemic. But of course, there's a great deal of skepticism about both of these things, <clears throat> some in good faith, maybe some in out without it. But I mean, how um, on a personal level, when how do you react to, you know, I'm just looking at headlines from Apple News today, Wall Street Journal reports energy prices soaring across Europe uh, due to their reliance and their cancellation of nuclear energy, for example. Um, uh, Germany gets most of its energy now from coal <laughs> after years of wind subsidies. Coal is reliable, so it is uh, more uh, beneficial. Hospitalization rates for COVID are very misleading. This is in the Atlantic. Uh, they are uh, come in after the fact, and they get retroactively diagnosed, according to the Atlantic. Now, this is not a political 
uh, show, as you know, I, I believe that uh, astronomy is a safe space and cosmology and physics because we, you know, no one wakes up and says, I hate that Republican constellation over there or that Tory, that damn Tory astronaut uh, asteroid. Um, but Tim, how does that affect you when you see, you know, headlines like these that are casting doubt maybe, or um, maybe it's it's where the you know scientific becomes political. Um, you know, what advice do you have? Do we really need to invest more money to have global consensus and have, you know, CERN cost tens of billions of dollars to construct and tens of billions of dollars to operate? Um, how, how would we go about convincing somebody, uh, you know, your new prime minister <laughs> uh, to, to invest in something like a CERN for climate change? What would what would be some of the arguments or a CERN for COVID? Well, I, I don't know about a CERN for COVID because I'm perhaps not, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm the right person to talk mm -hmm. about that, but I can certainly talk about a, a CERN for climate change. Um, and the issue, you know, the issue comes back to what I talked about earlier, which is we're dealing with a very, uh, you know, mathematically speaking, a very large dimensional uh, chaotic system. So large dimension means it really needs a very large number of variables to uh, simulate it well. Uh, and, uh, you know, a typical weather forecast model these days would have several billion uh, variables, you know, represented. And you can very easily show that um, if you skimp on that, then your hurricanes don't become as intense uh, as they were before, or your droughts don't become as long-lived as they were before. Extreme weather, you know, becomes less extreme if you start skimping on degrees of freedom. Now, if you're making a 10-day weather forecast, uh, you can pretty much run uh, a um, a model with a with a billion or more degrees of freedom uh, on a on a you know a large but not necessarily absolutely top top of the range supercomputer. I mean a peta petaflop. Uh, computer would um, 10 to the 15 floating point operations per second would would do pretty well. But when you come to climate, where we're trying to make uh, these projections over 50 years or so, we're trying to say what, you know, what's the, you know, like California, what's California going to be like in, the, in, in, um, in 50 years time? And, you know, a key question, uh, which, uh, you know, for example, a key question to ask will be, how does climate change affect the likelihood of these La Nina events? Mm. You know, because La Nina is certainly a contributory factor uh, uh, for the all the, um, uh, the the drought and the and, and the fires and things that you've had. So um, it becomes a complex question, and uh, I very much am of the view that the sort of computing capabilities that a university group would have or you know a typical uh you know national institute you mentioned the the san diego scripps uh, oceanographic institute world leading institute but it doesn't have the compute power to do this type of calculation and i would you know what by a turn for climate change what i'm really arguing for is is dedicated absolute top of the range supercomputing, which these days is exascale, 10 to the 18 flops yeah. per second, floating point operations per second, yeah. uh, dedicated to climate change. And that's not happening at the moment anywhere around the world, uh, but a kind of an international consortium. It, it Actually, we're not talking about billions. We're talking about maybe one to 200 million a year. Mm -hmm. So it's not a big deal. 
it's uh mm-hmm. you know it's a it's a it's a satellite program or something like that i don't know um uh so for me it's kind of a no-brainer um mm-hmm. it comes you know if if i'm talking to a climate skeptic i would say look you surely are as interested as I am, or as a climate, you know, uh, uh, somebody that's very concerned about climate change, to know the truth, you know, how bad is it going to get? Yeah. Um, this is the only way we have to solve this problem. Computing uh, uh, or solving the laws of physics uh, is the only way we have to deal with this. We can answer this question. There's no laboratory experiment we can do to it, emulate climate change. Is, in, is, in the is it right? Yeah. Is it even possible, though? I mean, I've you know, you you make a very, very clear distinction in the book between things that are complex systems and things that are merely complicated. You know, I would say like building uh, a 787, you know, jetliner is incredibly complicated. It's hard to do. It could take an individual, you know, a billion years to do it. But if he or she follows the instructions, has the raw materials, puts them into parts and et cetera, et cetera, it can be done. On the other hand, you know, it seems to me the smallest possible, and and you should um, define for my audience the various definitions of complexity, so forth. But the smallest possible system that's capable of modeling global climate, and or even weather, is the climate itself. In other words, it's kind of an old school analog computer. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, you get the results after the event. Uh, but there's you know there's no letter from God that says you have to be able to predict things in the future, right? So, um, what do you make of the uh, of 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 the fact that perhaps it's not just mere computing power? I mean, and I'm saying mere. I don't mean to denigrate it at all. And I think it's it's absolutely necessary. But maybe that's not enough. And and you know. Uh, is could it be the situation requires you know a literal global scale computer, not just a global collaboration of computing power? Well, let me let me just say, look, I mean, wh- why are we trying to do this in the first place? Uh, and I would say, perhaps, the number one uh, reason is that countries around the world now are having to face the fact that climate change is a reality, um, and part of the uh, spending is going to be on how to make society more resilient, how to adapt to climate change. You know the climate change that's already going to going to happen. Um, you, you, uh, you know, Pakistan, great example. I mean, what are, what do they do if these things are going to hit? They, these floods that we've had in the last couple of weeks are going to hit them every few years now with kind of unbelievable intensity. How is that country going to adapt to climate change? Um, but there's a sort of subtle question, uh, actually even taking Pakistan uh, mm-hmm. in, in mind, because at the moment we're kind of in a, a very much a sort of transition phase where the weather patterns are staying pretty much as they are, but the temperature is getting warmer, mm-hmm. you know, the air holds more water, so when it rains, it rains more. But in the next couple of decades, what we're going to start to see are more dynamical effects. So the 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 circulation patterns are going to start to change, um, and and this is really a key question. Then, if you're adapting to climate change, if you're uh, you know a country in Africa or you know Southeast Asia, you have to decide: is my greater threat uh, drought and heat wave, or is it storm? Uh, and flooding and uh, storm surge and that sort of thing. 
and very different types of expenditure are going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to spend money on completely different things. If you think the main threat is from droughts and heat waves, or if you think it's from storms and floods. So we absolutely need this information. And uh, as you say, we can wait for it to happen. Uh, that's the kind of analog, if you like. <laughs> but, but, and the problem is, um, you know, again, I mentioned this in the book that, you know, so one of the, you know, at the turn of this millennium, uh, the, the Clay Mathematics Institute mm -hmm. uh, announced the, the most important mathematical problems that faced uh, the, ma the mathematical world at the turn of the millennium, it's kind of mirroring what David Hilbert did uh, in 1900, right. announcing what were then the key problems. And um, the, the millennium problem, one of the millennium problems was actually about the Navier-Stokes equations. And you could interpret this problem as implying that we don't have a kind of uber theory which will tell us if you get your model grid down to one kilometer, say, you will simulate the climate with, you know, an accuracy of, of 95% or something like that. I, I mean, I just wish we could do that because then I could go to the politicians and bang my fist on the table and say, look, I have a, I can prove mathematically, if you give me a hundred million year, I will, you know, simulate climate to 95% accuracy. And I can't do that. Um, but all common sense and all experience in weather forecasting on much shorter timescales tells us that as we increase the resolution of these, we reduce the size of these grids, which means we increase the resolution of the models, mm -hmm. um, which means we're solving these equations more accurately, then we then we simulate things better. We get extremes better. We get all these things better. So all the, you know, all the all the uh, kind of evidence is pointing to a, a kind of a modest investment in a in um, you know one or or a few international institutes mm -hmm. that can put dedicated exascale computing to get us down to kilometer scale grids mm. is going to make a big change to and the seems much more... of our models, which are pretty inaccurate at the moment. I, I have to say, on the regional yeah. scale. You know, I, I you know, I, I don't know whether your listeners will want to know this fact, but if you if you are the uh, this country uh, in Africa or, or Southeast Asia that I mentioned, and you look up the IPCC uh, figure, the figure in the IPCC report for how uh, rainfall is going to change, is it going to get wetter in your country or drier in your country? You'd think that was a pretty basic question that everyone would want to know. Is it going to get wetter or is it going to get drier? For pretty much, you know, most of the globe, uh, the models just don't agree. There'll mm -hmm. be this little crosshatched region of the figure and you consult the legend and it says crosshatching means the models don't agree. <laughs> so this is a, a, a pretty unsatisfactory, I would say, state of affairs. And, um, it's coming because, well, it's coming because we we parameterize all these processes which are important because we don't have the computing to solve the equations exactly, and uh, the parameterizations are exceptionally uh, uncertain. And it seems and, to me know. that you know governments are willing to spend you know enormous amounts of money. We we just had a bill in America, you know, good fraction of a trillion dollars, and. And uh, the anal uh, analysis that I've seen from independent organizations, it'll reduce temperatures, global temperatures by less than a tenth of a degree Fahrenheit in, uh, by the end of the century. 
And, um, you know, whereas for, as you say, you know, literally a thousandth of that amount of money, you could have, uh, you know, exascale computers dedicated to this. Um, well, and yet I still wonder, you know, because COVID does play a role in the book and in your uh, thought process, um, you know, I remember uh, back in January 2020, I'd been invited to go to uh, to China to speak in Tibet, of all places, where they're building a CMB observatory. And uh, they wanted to have show it to me. And I thought, oh, this is great. And I got excited. I'd never been to China. And I asked, uh, I was at dinner at a, at a Friday night Shabbat dinner and one of my friends had here in San Diego. And uh, one of my friends told me he's been to China many times. And he's like, ah, I don't think you should go there. You know, this is early, mid-January, uh, you know, because there's this COVID-19. And I had heard about it, but I was like, you know, I've heard all these things and SARS and this thing. Yeah, okay, hopefully by April, it'll be resolved of 2020. I mean, it is January after all the invitation. It's like, I'd look a little bit closer. Needless to say, it wasn't resolved and it might not even still be resolved. Some parts of China are locked down in the end of 2022. Um, but given that we in the US at least, and I assume in other countries as well, we have you know tri multi-trillion dollars worth of three-letter agencies, you know, from the NSA and and the FBI and the CIA. We have all these spy agencies, all these, um, and they didn't even get, you know, the fact that we should order 10 cent masks for everybody or, you know, that we should start working on stuff. And, and not all of that was, you know, because of who is the president or who controlled Congress. I think it was a failure of these huge, you know, sclerotic organizations to translate their discoveries, or maybe they didn't know. And, and that terrifies me more. If you pay somebody a trillion dollars, the very damn least they better know is that, well, you know, China just built this hospital in eight days that can hold 10,000 people. Well, why would they do that? You know, I mean, forget about the micro or, you know, biology of the organism, just the practical on the ground fact. We didn't do any of that. And uh, my friend knew that all of that in January of 2020. He's not like some spy uh, for the government. So, you know, I guess the question I always have is, is how do we translate, you know, politicians are very quick, as you know, to clamor for, you know, uh, their particular scientific findings, uh, if it agrees with their persuasion politically. Um, but how do we actually get them to listen to people like you and your colleagues to say, look, no, we don't need to, to like, you know, outlaw uh, gas-powered cars in in America, uh, you know, in 2020-35. Um, what we need is $200 million a year for 10 years to get better forecasting so that we can adapt as humans are much better at adapting than we are predicting. So how do we, how do you bridge that gap? I mean, you have a share of a Nobel Prize, which is uh, sitting in your office there. Uh, how, how do we get them to listen, not just to the science that furthers their political goals, but to listen to the true science, the good science that you and your colleagues are doing? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough problem. I mean, as you know, uh, <clears throat> as a scientist, you know, I can't make decisions and I, in a way, you know, I, all I can do as a scientist is, is lay out the science as clearly, uh, as possible. And, uh, uh, and we just have to hope that the, the politicians get it i mean the politicians did get it eventually at least here in the uk they did get it with covid although you know they were very slow on the uptake uh i think the science of course the science was pretty uncertain in the initial phase because we would i mean this covid was a was an unusual i mean the thing that made it difficult was the fact that a lot of people 
were asymptomatic. They were carrying it and they could spread it, but they didn't really have the, you know, the symptoms themselves. So unlike normal uh, or more kind of uh, familiar types of, of, of uh, diseases, you know, where you get ill and there you automatically go to bed and you isolate. Mm-hmm. This was one where lots of people were getting uh, getting the COVID virus but weren't symptomatic of of of, uh, of having problems so uh so so science you know there was a lot of challenges for for the science in the early phase but i think in this case the politicians uh at least here in the uk they did they did get it we had we had a lot of committees and things but yeah i mean how do i i mean i i'm i'm very active in at the moment trying to you know sell this CERN for climate change idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say one of the frustrations is that some uh, maybe maybe this was like the real CERN back in the 50s, I don't know, but some of my colleagues, I think, you know, they are nervous that if mm-hmm. a new institute was uh, funded, the money would come from their institute's budget. So they might, you know, let's say uh, if we're talking about San Diego, uh, you know, if the U.S. decided to go down this route, um, would, you know, would the Scripps Institute mm-hmm. find that its budget, you know, a little, was was being paired off a little bit to help pay for this? And that, that creates some, uh, I would say, uh, kind of uh, nervousness amongst some of the uh, community. And... And this is a problem because when I talk to, you know, the really big scientific advisors in the UK, I mean, the question they immediately ask me, do you, does your community speak with one voice? And I would say, well, you know, there are some people who, and they would just stop me mid-sentence <laughs> and they would say, come back where they speak with one voice. <laughs> um, that's never going to happen. <laughs> and that that so that that's that's an issue uh which uh you know uh which uh which we're trying to kind of get get over uh trying to kind of convince the our friends that because we'll still need the kind of what I would call the conventional models. You know, there's loads of uh, of really important climate work, for example, understanding paleoclimate variations. I mean that that you know, right. uh, that involves running models for thousands, tens of thousands of years. There's no way we're going to be able to run a one kilometer model over 10,000 years. It's inconceivable. Yeah. So we'll need low, we'll need lower resolution models for doing, you know, some of the basic science and some of the paleoclimate work and things like that. So I don't think these people actually should feel concerned that they're somehow, their 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 pet models are being somehow uh made redundant uh it's just we'll need a hierarchy and and for the really important uh kind of climate policy stuff um uh, like ne- next week i'm going on a committee this is another example mm-hmm. um about this climate geoengineering should we be spraying uh, aerosols into right. the stratosphere if yeah, we can't on here on and i would say how would you ever make that decision if you had models that had you know biases and systematic errors that were as large as the signals that right. you're trying to simulate with this thing is it's just it doesn't just doesn't seem plausible that we'd ever sanction such a a plan b without mm-hmm. having a very good idea for example whether the monsoons were going to shut off or the 
moisture supply into the rainforest was going to shut off. And we're not going to do that unless we have models that can really get these regional details, uh, you know, done correct, correctly and accurately. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's plenty of, I mean, I hope there's, there's enough, you know, this is such an important problem. There's enough space here for a, a hierarchy of models from the very simple Lorentz chaos model through to these kind of hundred kilometer scale climate models, which you would use for paleo work through to the one kilometer models, which are going to inform policy for the next 50 years or so. Mm-hmm. There must be, there must be room for all of us, surely. So I want to transition um, uh, for the you know second half of the conversation into a um, into more speculative ideas, perhaps, but maybe not. And I couldn't escape, you know, thinking about the connection between quantum mechanics and uh, interpretation and foundations of quantum mechanics, uh, which are quite quite you know popular and and have you know been receiving a lot of attention lately. Uh, many books written about it, but also I think yours is the first book to really attempt to make a connection between, you know, as I have in my notes here, between the butterfly and the bell, you know, bell being bells inequality. Right. Um, so right. I wonder, first of all, if you can, um, you know, if you, if you don't mind uh, kind of recapitulating uh, what is Bell's theorem? What is, what is real? If you don't mind in, in, in a few minutes, uh, what, what is the nature of Bell's inequality? A lot of people hear it. We've done interviews. Adam Becker wrote a book called what is real about it. Uh, but, um, but a lot of people, you know, kind of, what's a big deal. You know, if I go into my sock drawer and I've got a pair of red socks and a pair of white socks and I go on a, on a holiday, open up my suitcase and I've got a pair that's a red sock and a white sock. I know for damn sure in my drawer at home, there's a white sock and a red sock too. Uh, so what what is this about the, we should have Sabina here, um, you know, to, to actually quote, uh, to quote the, Exact term that Einstein used, Gemeinschaft der Schrotterschwaschenfrist. I don't know. <laughs> I do know that she said that this book, your book, is a whirlwind. It's partly scientific autobiography and partly a manifesto of a visionary. Tim Palmer masterfully weaves through climate change, quantum mechanics into one coherent whole. He is a revolutionary thinker way ahead of his time. So let's weave together. The butterfly in the bell jar. Uh, yeah. uh, what is the bell inequality? What does it tell us? What is it important? Is it just kind of a yeah. mathematical audit? Well, let, let, let's let's start with the butterfly because because the butterfly effect is is a pretty um, it kind of conforms, I think, to what most of us think of as uncertainty. Um, the idea being that. You know, we can't, uh, you know, clearly we can't observe all of the butterflies in the world that flap their wings. Correct. Um, I mean, the butterflies themselves can see their wings flapping. Uh, They're not at all uncertain about the fact they're flapping their wings, but we humans can't see all of that. So really what the butterfly effect is saying is that the uncertainty in a weather forecast comes because we don't have perfect information about you know the starting conditions for the weather forecasts. So a philosopher would call that epistemic or epistemological uh, uncertainty. It's a kind of a lack of knowledge about the system that you're interested in. Yes, uh, and that kind of characterizes, I would say, most you know most things in life that we we don't know things because we can't know everything about the system that we're interested in. Um, 
And of course, you know, Einstein, that, that's kind of how Einstein felt quantum uncertainty should be too. It's reflecting something that we don't know about the electrons or the photons, you know, that's kind of going on at a, at a smaller level than we can possibly see. But Bell's theorem, Bell's inequality, or, or the Bell jar, whatever you want to call it, um, is probably the single most important uh, experiment. Well, it's a theoretical result, but has been tested experimentally, which I think most, probably most physicists would say, uh, kind of really, oh, I was going to say cast out, but that's too weak a phrase. Most physicists would say it disproves Einstein's view. Right. Um, and ba so, so basically, the as you say, uh, it's kind of based on it's based on an idea or a word which which Schrodinger came up with uh, when he actually when he was at Oxford, um, hmm. which is this notion that quantum systems can be entangled, and um, and as you say that that gives rise to correlations. Uh, you, know, you you could say it's a bit like a you know two particles go off and one's got a red sock and one's got a white sock or something. Mm -hmm. So if you observe the red sock, you know the other one is certainly the white sock. Except that it's not like that, because what Bell, so Bell was an Irish physicist who worked at CERN, and he realized that if that was what was behind this entanglement, that you know one electron had a red sock on, and if you measured the red sock, you could determine that the other electron going in the other direction had a white sock. If that was all there was to it, then Bell uh, Bell realized that these you could you could look at these correlations. Uh, I mean, basic it, it kind of basically it's about measuring the spin of particles or the polarization of photons, um, and you measure them in in different ways, and the correlations. Uh, you, you, uh, you know, the, the result is a mathematical one where you sum up these correlations, and uh, if if uncertainty really was the fact that you, uh, you know, we didn't know whether the electron was wearing its its red sock or its white sock, if that's what it was, then this kind of sum of correlations that Bell came up with would be uh would would have a, a largest value a value of two um so you sum correlations done with different measuring uh different polarizers and you come up with this thing which says if 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 everything is deterministic and the uncertainty is just due to the fact that we uh, don't know everything about the electron or the photon then this this uh correlation function summing over cor over correlations from different experiments is kind of bounded by the number two and you do the experiment and you find for certain uh settings of these polarizers this number exceeds two so there's something gone wrong with your uh assumptions and most physicists would say that the assumption that goes wrong is that uncertainty is epistemological and that really what's happening is that the equations of quantum mechanics are intrinsically uncertain it's not like it's like the butterflies or the electrons if the electrons are the equivalent to the butterflies the electrons don't know what they're doing the electrons are uncertain um and since quantum mechanics is a theory of everything you know it's describing the world 
it's believed at least to be a theory describing everything in the world, then everything in the world, in some sense, including reality, is uncertain. And that is the sort of, I would say, the sort of standard view. Now, there is, there's, there's, another, there's another way around it, but it's kind of, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of just as bad, which is to say that when you measure the electron and you see it's got a, a white uh, sock, that somehow uh, makes the electron on the other side of the experiment have a red sock. So prior to you actually doing that measurement, the, the, the electron sort of had neither a white sock nor a red sock. But doing a, a measurement on one, one particle somehow instantaneously makes the other particle have something definite. Now, that again, you know, Einstein didn't like that. Quite rightly, he called it spooky action at a distance, the, the idea that doing something here can instantaneously change something over there. So we're kind of left with, I think, a very unsatisfactory state of affairs. But the consensus view, I would say, amongst the majority of physicists who, who think about this problem is that uncertainty in quantum mechanics is, the, so the buzzword would be ontological rather than epistemological. Ontological meaning it's kind of the notion of reality is uncertain. Well, okay, I kind of came into this many years ago, kind of feeling, God, this, this can't be right, surely. And looking very, very carefully uh, at Bell's theorem again, and from the sort of perspective of my uh, kind of chaos background, and this is what I like to think I'm bringing something which maybe the standard quantum community haven't quite sort of seen in, in this way, which we spoke a little bit about earlier, um, which is this notion that when you, when you go through Bell's theorem carefully, you imagine a particle and you imagine an experimenter doing an experiment on a particle, but to prove the Bell inequality, you have to assume that had the experimenter done a different measurement to the one he or she actually did, then they would have got some definite result. And this is sometimes called counterfactual definiteness. And, you know, in life, we tend to, I mean, we all use kind of counterfactual reasoning to some extent. Oh, God, if only I had done this and not done that, you know, life would be so much better now. We kind of assume that it makes sense to talk about these counterfactual worlds. But I, I try to argue from the point of view of chaos theory, it's not a, it's not a given that a counterfactual world uh, is consistent with the laws of physics. And we talked earlier about these fractal attractors with their gaps in them. And if your counterfactual world ended up in one of these gaps, that would tell you, and, 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 and the states of your system had to lie on the fractal, then that's telling you that counterfactual that you just thought up is actually inconsistent with this geometry. Mm. So the short answer is, I personally think, and I have to say, I'm saying this uh, without, you know, probably if you polled an average physicist, they they might say, well, he's he maybe it's interesting, but I don't sure I believe it at the moment. So it's this is a controversial point of view, but I think there is a way around the Bell theorem which doesn't require you to give up on this notion of a definite reality or or have to invoke this spooky action at a distance. Mm -hmm. And that's actually why I wrote a paper with Sabina Hossenfelder, because it comes under the 
what some people call the super determinism, which is not a word I'm terribly keen on. But um, if it if it is the case that counterfactual reasoning can sometimes fail you in quantum mechanics, and I, as I say, I think it can do for perfectly rational and sensible reasons, um, then your model is is a, is belongs to this class of super deterministic models, and I, I think that is a much more plausible uh, way to understand quantum uncertainty. And and it really what it does then is it brings you back to what I think both Einstein and Schrodinger would have been much more happy with, and others as well. Dirac was pretty unhappy with quantum mechanics, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say that quantum uncertainty is actually epistemic and it's not ontological. The laws of physics at their deepest. I think are uh, certain and definite, and that uncertainty ultimately is our uncertainty. And what about the person practicing the epistemology or the ontology? In other words, what about the role of consciousness? As you know, your fellow Oxonian who uh, endorsed this book wholeheartedly, uh, saying the very delightful uh, praise <clears throat> that Tim Palmer's book, The Primacy of Doubt, provides a remarkably broad ranging account of uncertainty in physics in all its various aspects. I strongly recommend this highly thought-provoking book. As you know, Roger's been on the show many times and is a good friend. Um, And uh, he and Stuart Hammeroff were on a month or so ago on the occasion of of Sir Roger's 91st birthday. Uh, We celebrated his 90th birthday last year. Uh, And when we... uh, when we discussed it, we we got into kind of notions of quantum mechanics in the brain, and and we also explored. I asked him to steel man uh, the many worlds interpretation, which you know he doesn't believe in, um, and you know what if any role that has on uh, or could play in what he calls orchestrated uh, objective reality. Now you have this collapse um, that is caused as my limited understanding has it, you know, from some gravitational interactions involving uh, space-time curvature. Um, you've written a lot about uh, his uh, conformal cyclic cosmology. We'll maybe finish up with that in a little bit. But when we talk about uh, the brain and quantum mechanics um, and determinism, what role does the observer play in your notion of, or, or what you believe to be uh, this sort of you know, maybe stochastically and, and noisy brain uh, that that you've also had a, a recent paper about and you talk about it in the book. Uh, so first of all, noise in quantum systems and in, in biological systems, what is the what? role? And is it merely adding, as you said, you know, viscosity, artificial viscosity, some things converge and don't blow up? Or is it really a manifestation of nature and turbulence and, and so forth is a feature of the brain um, and the noise therein needs to be comprehended as well before we even get to a quantum understanding of consciousness. What is the role of noise in consciousness, if any? Right, right. Um, can I just uh, start with one point you made? Because you mentioned the word collapse. Yeah. Uh, collapse of the wave function. Um, uh, so uh, in the model which I propose, um, there is no collapse of the wave right. function because the wave function is representing an ensemble uh, of of states on this uh, on this fractal attractor. So what I what what a quantum uh, theorist would call measurement is actually um, you know it's like ball bearings going into one of t- two basins of attraction. You know, uh, uh, and some of them will cluster in one basin, and, and another and another set of ball bearings will cluster in a different basin. 
And basically, that is what I see as measurement. It's actually the it's where nonlinearity starts to affect the quantum world, um, and it's clustering trajectories in discrete uh, clusters. Now, the human, I think consciousness doesn't, and I think Roger would agree with this, actually, consciousness doesn't play any role at all in creating, uh, in, doing me- in doing quantum measurement. But where I would sort of take perhaps some departure from Roger is that I don't think uh, there is any collapse at all of the wave function. It's just a kind of transition from a, a very sort of, I have a I have a particular geometric model where you have trajectories in a like a helix and they're kind of rotating like a piece of rope. They kind of they class they rotate around each other, and then measurement is a kind of splaying of the ends of the rope and bits of the rope go into one cluster of states and and other bits of rope go into another cluster of state and these would be called the measurement outcomes. Now, uh, so so that that's just on that, but on consciousness and noise, so. There is actually an interesting uh, kind of story, which is that um, I, I've been trying to promote the idea. I, I think I mentioned earlier in our talk that there is a good reason to add noise to a climate model uh, to represent the degrees of freedom you can't uh, simulate explicitly. And you can show that adding noise actually does help improve uh, the the some aspects of the climatology of the model. And I, I in the book in the book I have a whole chapter where I Again, this is another area where nonlinearity plays an important role. In a nonlinear system, noise can be your friend. It's not your enemy. Mm. Um, you know, typically we think of of noise as a nuisance that we try to kind of minimize. But in a nonlinear system, noise can actually help amplify a signal. And I've given several examples in the in the book of how that can happen. Now. I've so I've been arguing for some years now that noise in climate models is a good thing. Um, and I think probably most people would agree with that now. But still to this day, we generate the noise by uh, you know, something I think that von Neumann originally started with, which is what's called a pseudo-random number generator. In other words, it's a piece of code which is perfectly deterministic, but it kind of emulates randomness. And uh, of course, the, you know, it takes a certain amount of, of computational uh, energy to run a pseudo-random number generator. So why not make use of noise in hardware? So you know, we've got all this noise of the electrons going through the uh, through the chips uh, uh, and so on. And I, a colleague of mine, Krishna Palem, has pioneered this notion of uh, of producing kind of noisy. Uh, chips where you turn the voltage down across the uh, transistors so they no longer act as completely bit reproducible deterministic uh, systems. The point is with that is you can then produce noise with negative energy costs because you've turned the voltage down. You're using less energy than you did before. So when I proposed this, I had a kind of commentary in Nature proposing that our supercomputers you know, should have cabinets, some of the cabinets, not all of them, of course, but some of them should be deliberately stochastic, where we would run, mm-hmm. uh, we, we'd, you know, we turn the voltage down across the transistors, we'd be using less energy. So they'd be kind of noisy computationally. Uh, and people thought this was a, a bit of a, a weird idea. Mm-hmm. So I, I had to try and think of an example where, uh, you know, in reality, uh, the system does 
do this. And I think the brain is a good example of this. So the brain, you know, the brain does phenomenal amounts of data processing uh, on 20 watts of energy. It's typically six orders of magnitude less than a supercomputer does mm -hmm. uses, which is more like 20 megawatts of energy, but for the same amount of data processing. So, um, so, so what's going on here with 20 watts? Well, we've developed these incredibly, uh, you know, slender neurons with, with very small diameters, 0.1 microns or whatever. Uh, and as a result of that, we've managed to cram 80 odd billion neurons into our brain. So when you calculate uh, how much, um, if you like, energy or power there is per, per neuron, I mean, it's just a microscopic amount. And the question is, is it possible that um, the transition, transmission rather of, of electrical energy along axons is actually susceptible to noise? And the evidence, all the evidence is for these very slender neurons that uh, axons that are in the human brain, they are susceptible to noise. Okay, so is that a bad thing or a good thing? And in the book, I try to argue it's a good thing. And it's probably what's made us the kind of creative species we are. And it's interesting, you talk about, I mean, Roger Penrose is a, is a great example of a phenomenon which is pretty much universal, I think, amongst you know people who've had eureka moments, because their eureka moment doesn't happen when they're you know hard at work thinking about the problem they're trying to solve. It mm -hmm. it happens in a completely uh, kind of uh, at a time when you're you're multitasking, when the brain, all the neurons in the brain are doing different things. And in Roger's case, he was crossing the road, he was talking to a colleague of his, he was looking out for traffic. You know, and then suddenly this idea, which turned out to be the thing that got him the Nobel Prize about how to define an event horizon in a in a kind of generic way, um, came to him. And this is very common that people who have when they have their brilliant ideas, it's when they're relaxing or just, you know, doing nothing in particular. And I think this is where uh, the brain, where noise in the brain is most likely to have the, its biggest uh, effect when we're when we're multitasking, we're 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 looking around us, we're hearing things, we're walking down the road, we're perhaps talking to a colleague. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, we'll get some idea. Now, of course, we have to then analyze whether that crazy idea is uh, is any any good or not. And nine times out of ten, or maybe ninety nine times out of hundred, it's not much good. I mean, Michael Berry, the, the theoretical physicist at Bristol, has a great expression for this. He he talks about these ideas that come out, out of your subconsciousness as claritons, like a particle. But he says the problem with claritons is that in the cold light of day, the logical analysis, uh, which he calls an anti-clariton, uh, destroys the clariton <laughs> in a, a particle-antiparticle annihilation. Um, but it kind of makes the point that... Um, you know, actually, there are two parts to this. One is the just the, the randomness of having these ideas. And then the other is the fact that we have uh, a kind of a more deterministic side to our analytical processing, which kind of then decides whether the idea is any good or not. And it's this two, it's the synergy between the, the randomness and the determinism that probably is what makes us uh, the creative species we are. So anyway, the point is, I think that noise... Uh, plays a, a really important role in human creativity. And we'd not be the species we are if, if our neurons were more deterministic. So, mm -hmm. so that kind of provides a good example of why having noisy hard hardware 
you know, might be a good thing. And I, I would definitely think that, you know, for improving AI or the prospects of AI being really intelligent, uh, we, we probably need to go down that route. Yeah, well, you brought it up, so I can't help but, but, but uh, you know, kind of use one of my favorite examples, which you probably know, uh, doing your PhD with Dennis Schiama, who's a titan of 20th century uh, physics and cosmology. But, um, but do you remember what Einstein called his happiest thought, Tim? This, here's Einstein here. Uh, <laughs> I do, but it, it slips my mind. So he said, I'll give you a hint, Tim. Here you go. Here's a hint. Oh, I'm falling in the elevator. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, that's right. I mean, you know, I'd love to know where he thought that. Do you do you know? Where did he have that I thought? I don't, but bringing on your work. Uh, your, I bet it was in the bath or, yeah, you know, or, bring, doing, or maybe playing the, the violin or something. But yeah, but exactly. Irrelevant to your statement that, you know, AI, um, you know, the, the, the will have to incorporate some of these features. You often hear that, you know, Einstein or sorry, that, you know, AI is going to be capable of reproducing the works of, you know, the greatest minds in science and, and even going beyond them. But that statement has always kind of been a counterfactual piece of evidence against those claims that Einstein said, my happiest thought, A, how could a computer have a notion of what makes it happy? Um, or two, uh, how could such an, uh, a computing device have a uh, have a notion of what freefall is? Uh, I have a computing device here, um, you know, in in my uh, I can make it do certain things like computer, turn off the lights, turn off the plug, computer, turn off the plug. There we go. So it'll do <laughs> stuff for me. It won't unplug itself though, Tim. I, I try to get it to do that, and it, it wouldn't do that. And it won't op open the pod bay doors either. I've tried. Right, that. I know. It sounds a bit. Uh, I tried that with with, uh, with uh, Sean Carroll. It didn't work. Um, so, what? How optimistic should we be? You talk about quantum computing in the book. Is that potential? Uh, you know, bo uh, boon for for either top topics of of uh, foundations in quantum mechanics or 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 in predicting the weather or something like that. Will we? Have well, I I mean, we're getting onto a big we're getting into a big era here. I'm I'm you know I'm. Um... If we want to talk about quantum computing, okay, I've just written a paper which I'm submitting to the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society oh, wow. about whether quantum computers will ever be used for weather and climate prediction. Wow. And I've called it the good, the bad, and the noisy uh, because, <laughs> you know, there are good points. Um, and the, the good point is that, you know, uh, it, I mentioned about billions of degrees of freedom. But you know, you don't have to have that many qubits, which are fully entangled, before you have billions of degrees of freedom. So thirty, I think thirty or something, two to the power thirty, mm -hmm. would give you roughly that sort of thing. So, so from that point of view, uh, it's it's kind of looks good, but there's a big negative, which is that at the end of the day, you have to measure these these thirty qubits, and it's a bit like a you know, it's 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 like saying instead of, uh, you know, with a weather forecast model now, you just say, you know, print out the temperature, uh, you know, in the US and you'll get values for temperature at different places and stuff like that or rainfall. Right. With a quantum computer, you have to say, is it raining in New York? You have to ask it a question that it will just answer yes or no. 
And you've only got 30 of these questions to ask. You know, is it rainy in New York? Is it snowing in uh, Cape Town? Is it sunny in London? Uh, right. And soon the computer will say, I'm sorry, you've run out of questions. That's it. And that's absolutely hopeless, you know, because the amount of data that people need across all the different applications, you know, is, is more than just 30 questions. So that for me is a, uh, it is something you don't see discussed very often that, you know, there's the upside to the exponential mm -hmm. size of Hilbert space is that you can simulate systems with relatively few qubits um, with very large degrees of freedom. The downside is you better not want to know very much about your system because at the end of the day, all you can do is measure those 30 qubits. And that's just too much of a restriction. Yeah. You know, it's like saying, it's like <laughs> saying, if all I ever cared about was how much the the global temperature is going to increase, if all I care about is going to be two degrees warmer or four degrees warmer because of climate change. Okay, fine. But as soon as you ask questions about is it going to rain in London? Is it going to be, you know, hotter or drier in Mozambique or something, then it's all bets are off. It's completely hopeless. <laughs> So that's uh, that's one thing. The other thing I would say about AI is that AI is fantastic for interpolating, but pretty hopeless for extrapolating. Mm -hmm. And the problem with climate change is it's a problem in extrapolation. Uh, you can't just take a look at past data and say, I know what's going to happen in 50 years time, even if you've got a super clever AI system. And, right. you know, uh, so again, I think there, there's there's a role for AI, there's probably a role for quantum, but it's not a panacea, absolutely not. Well, Tim, this has been phenomenally uh, entertaining and uh, elucidating, educational for me, and I know it is for my audience as well. And you've been so gracious with your time. I just want to beg your forbearance for a few more minutes, if you wouldn't mind indulging me and going into the impossible with my fantastic final four questions that I sure. like to ask my guests. Is that okay with you, sir? Right. Okay. So uh, the first question, they'll involve in some way around your late countryman, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, but um, the first one involves um, <clears throat> your near-term future, although I hope it won't be for 50 years or more. And that involves what we call uh, an ethical will, and even Alfred Nobel had an ethical will and his otherwise ethical component of his otherwise material will, in that the Nobel Prize was to be given to those who conferred the greatest benefit to mankind. Uh, and in that sense, he wasn't just leaving money, but he wanted to agitate towards the improvement of humanity. I want to ask you, in 50, 60 years, when you spring forth the mortal coil that the immortal bard spoke about. Um, what kind of wisdom, not just knowledge, but what kind of wisdom would you want to give over to the to the uh, succeeding generations to come? Um, well, look, I tell you one thing that uh, I feel privileged as a scientist, and I'm sure, Brian, you, you, you're probably the same as me, that you know we we work in our own different fields but science is very international and uh you get to talk to people you know from completely different cultures and completely different countries um and the one thing you realize very quickly when you do that is that we all have the same problems you know we all have things which we're frustrated about in life mm. uh you know uh getting the right kind of, you know, professional 
recognition, uh, having to earn enough money to keep our families going and, you know, all, all the sort of stuff, you know, it's kind of universal. And you realize, I mean, you know, I, you know, I worked for many years at a European uh, meteorological institute, which had, you know, people from every country in Europe. And, you know, we we joke about, you know, you can joke about national stereotypes, you know, the Brits are pompous so-and-sos and they have no taste in food, decent food. And, you know, the Americans, uh, not the Americans, but uh, the Germans, yeah, no, I won't say anything about the Americans. The Germans have no sense of humor, that sort of mm -hmm. thing. So we can make jokes about that. But what you actually realize is that the, the differences between individuals uh, is much, you know, even within a single, uh, culture is much, much bigger than any kind of national stereotypical difference. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, if I had to, it's not exactly a word of wisdom, but it just bothers me these days. And I, I guess I'm kind of slightly, I've got bothered by, in my own country with Brexit, the fact that we're, we're sort of, we seem to be moving away from our European partners and things more and more, that we're all basically the same. We're all got the same issues, the same problems. And if, you know, that you can find a Brit that's got a good sense of humor and you can find a Brit that's got no sense of humor. And that difference is, is infinitely larger than any kind of national stereotype between the Brits and the Germans or whatever it is. So it's really recognizing if I had a piece of wisdom that science has given me because science is so international, is that you know we're all basically the same, and uh, we've you know the more we can, uh, and we're the same on this in this infinitesimally small planet that's going around the vast universe. The more we can kind of come to terms with that, I think the better we'll, we'll yeah. get on as a human yeah. species. That's beautiful. Uh, so you may know that uh, Arthur C. Clarke is famous for many pithy aphorisms. We'll get into some of them. But uh, one of them was any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. We actually open the audio version of each podcast with his actual voice. And just a reminder, you guys can follow uh, the podcast on video and on audio, Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube, uh, and uh, also on audio, wherever you get your, your podcast. And this will be uh, available on publication day for this wonderful new book. But I want to ask you, uh, kind of in deference to Arthur's you know, 2001 a Space Odyssey, the Sentinels, these weird kind of uh, obelisks or monoliths that appear throughout the movie. Uh, we don't really know what they are. Maybe a time capsule uh, and it uh, could be a warning uh, about, uh, about the future. But if you had access to a time capsule and you knew it would last a billion years, what would you put on it or in it? You know, Now we're going deep into the future, well beyond your 120th year on the planet. Um, well, I, I think I would, I, so I'm going to say something mathematical, uh, and I would, um, I'll explain what it means. You, you, you'll know what it means. Uh, I, I would write the equation. It's not really an equation, but I'd write the, uh, uh, sort of a sort of mathematical equation, which would say SO2, uh, equals, sorry, SU2. SU2. Equals SO3. Three. Yep. And underneath it, I would say. We know it's true, but we don't understand why it's true. Mm. And, you know, I think one of the one of the quotes, I can't quote it exactly, um, 
from one of the greatest uh, mathematicians of the 20th century, uh, Michael Atiyah, who, who worked a lot with Roger Penrose. Yeah. He kind of made this point that SU2 is a, is a mathematical term for a, a group based on complex numbers. So these are numbers, you know, based on the square root of minus one. And SO3 is a group which is about how uh, you can rotate objects in physical space and they maintain their symmetry like a, a sphere. You can rotate and it's still a sphere. Now, these two are related, but, you know, Atiyah himself, so don't, you know, I'm just getting this from him. He's one of the greatest, math he was one of the greatest mathematicians. He said that the complex numbers are somehow the square root of geometry, but we just don't know really what it means. Hmm. And I, my kind of, all my gut, instinct is that if we had to understand something uh, that would take us further, deeper into fundamental physics, it's really understanding what this relationship really, really, really means. And so I kind of put that in my time capsule because I hope mm. the in a, in a million years they would say, aha, he was right. He was right to understand. He was right to question that because we've only understood it ten years ago, and <laughs> and it's really opened the door to quantum gravity and the the mystery of the universe and everything. Yeah. So uh, I'd love to talk a bit more about that. But and if I if I write another popular book, I'm I'm thinking I might actually that might be a kind of a theme of it because I feel it's really really uh, something yeah. that's important that we just don't quite understand what it's saying. Yeah, that is fascinating. Yeah. That be in my time capsule. I've always been fascinated by this uh, operation that you can do in classical mechanics, which is to form a Poisson bracket. Uh, and you do the exact same thing in a quantum mechanical setting. You make a Poisson bracket and you get zero in the classical uh, uh, commutation, anti-commutation relations. And you get you know, a, uh, you get the square root of negative one <laughs> and this funny constant, you know, Planck's constant emerges. And all you, I, I don't know, it must be something very deep, right? Because it's it's right. it's saying that not only do you get non-vanishing, you don't get zero anymore, a rather important round number, as uh, Julian Barbour used to say on the podcast, but you get this square root of negative one. Why is that? Where does that come from? And then presumably, I don't know, I mean, you're the right person to ask, but I mean, could you keep going? Are there higher way order ways of taking the analog of commutation relations that would give you quaternions and octonions and Clifford algebras? And I mean, is there a whole other set of reality? I mean, we just think quantum mechanics is hard, uh, but really it's just the analog of, you know, the square root of negative one. And we know there's a lot more richness, like you just said, SU, SU2. I don't know. Maybe I'm just uh, hopelessly out of my depth here, but uh, I find that. And I think I think it's a great question. I, I'm sort of worried that if we're getting towards the end of the podcast and I start launching into something, <laughs> okay, it, it will fair just enough. We yeah. end up speaking. Let's for do that out part two. So you'll write. So I'm just going to say it's a it's a really. I think you're you you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. It's a terrific question, and uh, you know that's what we got to focus on. All right, great. Last uh, two questions really quickly. Um, so uh, Arthur said things like for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. Uh, but he also said when a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, they are almost certainly right. When they say something is impossible, they are very probably wrong. What, if anything, I'm not calling you elderly, but what, if anything, have you changed your mind on recently or most pronouncedly in your life? in science well okay i'll give you a, an example and and i say this um 
you know, you you probably had the same experience as me, or maybe not. Maybe all your papers have been published, you know, with with minor only minor comments uh, from the referees. But very rarely. But occasionally we have papers where the referee says this paper shouldn't be published, you know, should reject. And uh, our initial reaction is to say, oh, this guy is an idiot. You know, how do they choose him? Oh, I say him, you know, him or her. I would say her. Yeah, you got to you gotta be. Could be a her. Yeah. Um, but I have to say there's one occasion where I'm just so happy that the referee rejected the paper. And mm. this was, um, you know, when the ozone hole was discovered uh, by balloon measurements uh, over Antarctica. It kind of took everyone by surprise because people had uh, predicted that ozone was being destroyed by the, you know, the chlorofluorocarbons from aerosols and so on. But then, you know, since we spray most of this stuff in the northern hemisphere, surely it would be the the ozone over the Arctic that would be destroyed. Right. So I kind of thought, well, okay, this probably suggests to me that this isn't actually a, a, a human uh, effect, but it's something in the dynamics of the uh, Southern Hemisphere climate that's causing this ozone hole. So I wrote a paper with, uh, with a colleague uh, and sent it to Nature, making a kind of hypothesis that it was caused by uh, yeah, some ocean, it started off in the ocean, the southern oceans, and then the effect propagated up in the stratosphere and the circulation uh, changes affected the ozone and stuff. And um, it wasn't rigorous, but we sent it to nature and it was rejected. <laughs> and of course, at the time I was incensed, you know, but nature, Dare. it wouldn't, I mean, once you, once your paper's rejected by nature, you, you that's it, you know, forget it. But my God, am I happy that it was because this was completely wrong. I mean, <laughs> uh, it turned out that it was actually caused by uh, human uh, aerosol you know, emissions. Right. Uh, and it was a, a kind of complicated chemical reaction that only happened in the Southern Hemisphere because the stratosphere is so much colder in the Southern Hemisphere than the Northern Hemisphere. So the temperatures weren't cold enough for this chemical reaction to happen in the Northern Hemisphere. So that was something where I was completely wrong and uh, I was so happy Fortuitous, that I never, yeah. never made the light of day. <laughs> Good, those are the kind of uh, errors you'd like to be wrong about. Like Einstein, his biggest blunder um, turned out to be right. a great discovery. Okay, right. last question, Tim, and I thank you so much. I know it's getting late there. Going backwards in time. Arthur C. Clarke's third law states the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. That's the origin of the name of the podcast. I want to ask you, we have a lot of young scientists that listen to this show in their 20s and 30s. Um, what advice would you give to a young Tim Palmer back in that epoch of your life um, decades ago uh, to give you the confidence, the courage, the charisma <laughs> to go into the impossible as you've done? Advice to your former self. Well, uh, I guess there are two things um, I would say. Uh, one is read broadly, because uh, I am a great believer in that sort of 90-something percent of new ideas in a particular field come because somebody has made the connection with, with some technique that's used in a different field. So uh, read broadly, don't get too siloed, you know, into one particular thing. And the other thing is, uh, which, which kind of comes back to uh, what we were talking about 
about the brain and and creativity. I mean, if it is the case that you have your eureka moments when you are uh, relaxing, then make sure you give yourself enough time to do that. I mean, don't spend the whole day in, stuck in front of your laptop or your desktop computer or something, just kind of agonizing about some piece of code or some equation or other. You know, make sure you have time to do nothing because it's that's when, as long as you've got the background, you know, your brain needs the needs the basic material there to make the connections. But the brain does its own thing in making those connections and just give it the time to do that. And if you're just all spending day and night just focusing your concentration on some scientific problem, you're not going to solve it. So, uh, you know, don't, uh, yeah, lead a balanced life, I would say. <laughs> Don't get, don't get, don't get sort of, uh, uh, you know, seduced into spending twenty hours a day focusing on some arcane problem. Pick up a guitar, a banjo, absolutely, a cricket paddle, absolutely, um, or a, a golf club. You, you have so many interesting uh, instruments in the back. I can't believe you're not a string theorist, uh, Tim Palmer. <laughs> uh, such a, an incredible polymath. It's true. Um, this book uh, written. Yeah, uh, with such, um, with such. I'll show you the Oxford. This is the OUP version, got a slightly okay. different front cover. So if wow. you're reading this in the UK or Europe or somewhere, very you, nice. You, can, you have a slightly different cover. Different right. cover, same content. Same content. Got, uh, has all the use and the flavor and neighborhood and all those good things. Um, it, it makes a worthy compliment to this book. Look, it has a butterfly on the on the front of it. Uh, you appear in this book very prominently. And uh, Sabina uh, kindly uh, appears on the cover, at least in endorsing with her heartiest encomium uh, of this book. Tim, you are a polymath, incredibly impressive. I would like to spend uh, more time at some point, uh, maybe at the occasion of your next book or when I'm in the UK, I'm supposed to be there next year, uh, come and visit. And I'd love to talk about, uh, yeah, hear you play those instruments in the background. That would be uh, such a treat. Uh, and so now I want to thank you and wish you a wonderful evening over there across the pond and hope uh, for the best of success and congratulations in my heartiest sense on this wonderful book. It's really a joy to read. Uh, I devoured it in both formats and listeners should as well. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Brian. It's very kind of you. Thank you. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Okay, that's a wrap on this episode of Into the Impossible Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation with Tim and hope you'll check out some of my past podcasts with Sir Roger Penrose and with uh, Sabina Hassenfelder, folks that we mentioned on the show. And if you don't mind to do me a couple of quick free favors, one, join my mailing list, brianketing.com slash list. You may even win a small piece of space schmutz, some space dust, a meteorite, if you're among the lucky few uh, to get selected at random. Not everybody wins but everybody wins in a certain sense because you'll join the most magnificent minds in the multiverse on the mailing list. I summarize all these conversations, things I learn, things I want to know more about, and cool findings from around the world of science, technology, engineering, and math. Next, please subscribe to my YouTube channel. Brian Keating um, can find it, uh, but Dr. Brian Keating is the channel name. And last but not least, please do leave a rating or a review, uh, whatever you're capable of, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, et cetera, et cetera. Just click on the links below and you can leave a... Uh, a quick review and it really does help us out to get more and, and uh, more 
uh, the message out to a wider audience around the universe. And that's all I ask. So thank you for joining me on this Think Like a Nobel Prize edition of the Into the Impossible podcast. If you're listening to this on Into the Impossible, I also have another podcast where I take all the Nobel Prize interviews only and put them all into one place. So recently we've had interviews with Guido Imbens, who won the Economics Nobel in 2021. And this is the first Peace Prize winner I've ever had on Tim Palmer. Wow. Agitating for peace. Someone sent me a picture of my second book, Into the Impossible, which is at the Nobel Peace Prize Museum all the way in Oslo. I thought it was cool. It's right next to Mother Teresa, where I belong, damn it. I mean, who's done more for world peace besides me? It's got to be Mother Teresa. So she's in good company. Just kidding. Just kidding. I think the dad jokes would have scared you off by now. But no, you're still here enjoying it. Have a magical rest of your week, everybody. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.